do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. So good to be with you guys this morning. Like Pastor Nate mentioned, uh, my name is Christian Conway. I work with the student ministry at our Yorktown campus. Uh, but I did want to say that this congregation here in Gloucester holds a special place in my heart. Because over the last two years, as I've been working with Coastal, I have gotten the opportunity to partner with this congregation in many different ministries, from wave camps with the kids over the summer, to student ministry, to men's ministry. I've gotten an opportunity to partner with you guys in so many different ministries. And one of the things that I notice whenever I come up to Gloucester is how close-knit of a community you guys are. You guys love each other so well. And when I come here, the love of Christ is so, so evident. And so that's a testimony to your faithfulness and a testimony to the faithfulness of Pastor Nate. Uh, in our passage this morning, I'd invite you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. We'll be closing out our series in 1 John this morning. And I'm really excited for this morning's passage because we have some, God has some really, really cool things in store for us this morning. Now, I can't lie. One of the other reasons I'm excited that I'm in Gloucester this morning is because I'm planning to try scoots for the first time for lunch today. And I've heard really good things. I've heard really good things. Uh, one of the things that you have to know about me and about my family is that we are big foodies. Whenever we go to new cities and new places, we're always looking for the best and the, the newest and the coolest. And sometimes we go to ask the locals to figure out what the best places are. And that's always been my job. When we go on vacations, my job is always to find the place where we're going to go eat. And typically what I'll do, if, if I can't find any locals to ask, what I'll do is I'll go online and I'll find some Google reviews about what the best places are. And, you know, sometimes it's real easy to choose because there's one restaurant with a thousand five-star reviews and it, it just seems like there's no competition. Other times I have to go based on Beach Mom 619 saying that the crab cakes are good. So I, I'm really excited to try Scoots this morning. But one thing I found as I've gone to all these different restaurants and tried different reviews is that I have to be careful who I put my confidence in. Because sometimes I, I go to the restaurant and it lives up to everything that I expected. I, I have the five-star experience and I get all the, the great foods that the person recommended. And then sometimes I go based on somebody's word and I get what they recommended and it's one of the worst wheel, meals of my life. And I have to like check the address to make sure I'm at the right, the same restaurant that they were talking about because I couldn't figure out how, how they thought it was so good. Well, what we're gonna be talking about this morning is where we put our confidence. Make sure that we're putting our confidence in something or someone that is worthy of our confidence. Because your confidence is only so strong as the thing or the person that you're putting your confidence in. So as we go into our passage this morning, I'm really excited because I, I, there are three different places where God points us to put our confidence in this passage this morning. And we'll get into those in a second, but I want to I wanna model my ministry a little bit after Pastor Nate. Pastor Nate, for the last two years since I've been at Coastal, he's been one of the men that I've looked up to the most. One of the men that I've been able to watch how he leads his family and how he leads this church, how he leads his life in a godly way. And I try to model my ministry after him. Uh, this morning, if you've noticed, I modeled it even down to the exact shoes that I wore when I was preaching to you guys. I am modeling my ministry after him. So in an attempt to do that, I'm going to give you my main point up front. Now, I'm not nearly as cool as him. I wasn't able to get it on your bulletin. But the main point this morning, I'd like for you to write it down if you can. The main point this morning in the passage is that Christians can confidently draw near to God through Jesus Christ. 
Christians can confidently draw near to God through Jesus Christ. And the key word there is confidently, because as we go through the passage, we're going to see three places where we can put our confidence as Christians. The first place we're going to see is we can put our confidence in our salvation. Then we'll see that we can put our confidence in prayer. And finally, we'll see that we can put our confidence in the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. So I'd like to start by looking at that first point. We can put our confidence in salvation. That should be number one on your bulletin this morning, confidence in salvation. Now, this comes from the first half of our passage. Uh, we'll be starting in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, and I'll be reading through verse 13 for this first point, confidence in salvation. So if you'll follow along with me, this is the word of the Lord. It says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So this morning's passage, as we know, is the closing passage of 1 John, the entire book the closing passage. And one of the things that I loved is as he's starting to close the book in verse six, he goes back to a theme that he's been touching on not only throughout the entire book of 1 John, but a theme that he's been touching on even back to his gospel that he wrote about Jesus. And this theme is that Jesus was God who came in the flesh. If you read the gospel of John, if you read the book of 1 John, you see over and over and over again that he wants to make a point to make sure that you know that Jesus is God who came in the flesh. And there's two aspects to Jesus's coming that he points out in these verses this morning. Uh, the first one on your bulletin will be letter A. This is the physical coming of Jesus Christ. He talks about the physical coming. And this, like I mentioned, it's a theme throughout the book because we can go back to different sections in 1 John and see that he wants us to know so confidently that Jesus came in the flesh. If you remember back a few weeks ago in 1 John chapter 4, we see in verses 2 and 3 that he's giving us kind of this roadmap of how to know when, the, when you're facing a spirit of an antichrist versus how to know when you're facing a spirit from God. And the way that he tells us, 1 John chapter 4 verses 2 and 3, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So he tells us very clearly that the way you can discern between spirits of the Antichrist and spirits from God is that spirits from the Antichrist will deny that Jesus came in the flesh. Spirits from God will preach and accept that Jesus came in the flesh. And so it's something that we ought to know that, that this is such an important aspect of our faith that Jesus came in the flesh, that he came physically. We see this again if we go even further back in the book of 1 John, the very opening verses of 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Listen to the way that John describes Jesus in these verses. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, 
and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. He does not want us to miss that Jesus came in the flesh, that Jesus came physically to this earth. And going back to our passage this morning, we see that when he emphasizes that he came by water and blood in verse six. It says, this is he who came by water and blood. Now, one of the things that struck me as odd as I was reading this passage is that he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say Jesus came by water and blood and then go on to his next point. No, he, he circles back around, but when he does, he emphasizes the blood. He almost treats the water as if it was this foregone conclusion that Jesus came by water, but he wants to make sure that you know that Jesus came by blood. Look with me again at verse six. After he says, this is he who came by water and blood, he says, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. So this reminded me of a, of a family friend we had who used to come to church a few times. And whenever he would go to church, he would always give us the comment. He would say, you know, I, I go to church and it just gives me weird, it gives me a weird feeling because people in church are always talking about this guy's blood right? We're singing about his blood. We're talking about his blood. We're praying God, thanking him for the blood of Jesus Christ. He said, I've never hung around a group of people who talked about one person's blood more than Christians talk about the blood of Jesus, which I was, I was thinking about. It. I was like, you're right. We, we do talk about the blood of Jesus a lot. But the more I started to think about it, the more I realized that should be what separates us from the world, right? The reason we are holy and, and able to be sanctified by God is through the blood of Jesus Christ. The reason that we have eternal life that God has offered to us, the way that we get that eternal life is through the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, the blood of Christ is the thing that separates us from the world. So when, when, when the world comes and hears us talking about the blood and singing about the blood, we ought to be doing those things because that is what makes us Christians. The blood of Jesus Christ is what has saved us. So as I was reading this, I was thinking to myself, like he wants to emphasize, John wants to emphasize that it's by the blood of Christ. The blood is the, the part of his physical coming that matters the most to us. But there's also this other side that we, we can't ignore, the water side of things, right? And so I was, I was reading this and I was, what could he possibly mean by water and blood? Why is he choosing of all the physical aspects of Jesus and his ministry, why did he choose these two things? And the reason I landed on is I was thinking about Jesus's predecessor, John the Baptist, who came and, and led the way for Jesus. Well, we remember what he said. He said, I baptize by water, but there comes one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I'm baptizing by water. So John recognized that his ministry was limited to the water of, of baptism that he could offer to people. And it was effective because what he could do is he could point people's eyes toward the coming Messiah. But he realized that that was kind of the extent of his ministry. You see, the, the water of baptism was the most that he was able to accomplish. He wasn't the, the, the core of his ministry. He wasn't able to accomplish anything more than the baptismal waters. But when Jesus came, John looked at him and said, behold, the Lamb of God. John recognized that Jesus had something more than the waters of baptism that his ministry offered. Jesus had something more. And this something more that Jesus's ministry offered was the blood. You see, Jesus could come and people were baptized in his name, but it didn't stop there. You see, the waters of baptism aren't the only thing that washed people in Jesus and his disciples' ministry. The blood of Jesus Christ washed people clean. The blood of Jesus Christ is the thing that set, set his ministry apart from anybody else's ministry in all the history of the scriptures and all the history of the world. Because he was the perfect lamb of God. And by shedding his blood, he earned forgiveness of our sins. 
Now, going back to the other thing that John the Baptist said about Jesus, he said, I baptize with water, but there is coming one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This leads us to the second side of Jesus's coming that John is emphasizing in our passage this morning, and that's letter B on your bulletin this morning. It's the spiritual side of Jesus's coming, the spiritual side. So we, we covered the physical side that John touches on, but now we're looking at the spiritual. And if you'll look at the end of verse six with me, John continues after the water and blood discussion, and he says, the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now, one of the most amazing things to me about Jesus's ministry, it, one of the longest lasting effects that comes from Jesus's ministry is the Holy Spirit that he gave to us. In John 15, 26, Jesus made a promise to his disciples he said, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So when Jesus came, he brought with him this ministry of the Holy Spirit, and he promised that when he leaves, this helper, this Holy Spirit, the, the very Spirit of God will come and indwell his followers, will strengthen us, will, as Jesus says, bear witness about me. And so there are a few ways that the Holy Spirit bears witness about Jesus, even in our lives today. One of those ways is, we see this in John 14, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will teach us all things and bring to our remembrance the words of Christ. So one of the ways that the Holy Spirit testifies to the coming of Christ is by helping us remember the words of Christ and by bringing to remembrance all truth by guiding us in all truth and showing us the way that God wants us to live our lives according to his truth. But the other way that the Holy Spirit testifies to Christ's coming, we see this in John 16, Jesus makes this promise that the Holy Spirit would draw people to salvation by convicting the world of sin and righteousness. And I was reading a commentator this week who pointed out a really cool thing. He said, you know, no matter how many holy words you read in your life or holy words you hear, no matter how many sermons you hear preached, you're never going to come to salvation apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Never. It doesn't matter how many, how many times you've read the Bible, how many sermons you've heard preached, you can go to a sermon every day of your life, but apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, you will not come to salvation. He pointed out that uh, on the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 people were added to the church, every single one of those people was drawn by the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised would come and bear witness about him. This is the Holy Spirit, the very Holy Spirit that John is saying is the truth who testifies about Jesus. So we see these two sides of Jesus' coming, the physical and the spiritual. Now, I want to take just a minute to talk about one of the most important doctrines in the Christian church. And one of the most important doctrines throughout all of history since Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And this is a big Bible word. I hope it doesn't scare you away. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take some time to break it down and explain it. But this is the doctrine of the atonement. The doctrine of the atonement. And atonement is this, like I said, it's this big Bible word. But all it means is that Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, he atoned for the sins of all who will come to faith in him. You see, we owe this massive penalty for our sins. Every single one of us is guilty. We have done things that God commanded us not to do or we've not done things that God commanded us to do. We, we deserve God's wrath. But Jesus Christ, he took that wrath on his shoulders so that everybody who comes to faith in him does not have to. 
And the reason I bring this up is because the physical and spiritual sides of Jesus's ministry are so, so, so important to the atonement. They're so important. The atonement is only true because Jesus was fully God and because he was fully man. Apart from those two truths, the atonement would have no power. And the reason we have to have that is because in order for Jesus to live a life that fulfilled the law God gave to his people, the perfect life, the, the perfect life that we could never live to fulfill the law and take on the punishment, he had to be man. Only a man could fulfill the law and take on the punishment for that sin. Even though he didn't deserve that punishment, Jesus took the punishment on his shoulders that we deserve. But on the other side of things, he had to be fully God. Because if you think about it, every single person who has ever come to faith in Jesus Christ, they deserve God's eternal wrath. The only, the only being who can withhold or, or withstand God's eternal wrath and come out on the other side to tell you about it is God himself. So if Jesus was only a man, he, would have, he, he, he could have lived the life, but when he died, he wouldn't have been able to bear the eternal penalty that we all deserve. So it's because he was fully man and because he was fully God that he was able to atone for our sins. And these two sides of Jesus's ministry are so key to the gospel message. The gospel is only true because of these two truths. And at Coastal, I love the way that we've distilled the gospel down to a really easy to remember, really simple message. We, we have the gospel in three core facts. Jesus is God. Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he bodily rose again from the dead. Jesus did these three things and that's the gospel. That's the good news that we can be saved from the penalty for our sin if we respond to that gospel the way God's called us to. And how do we respond to the gospel? We repent from our sins, believe in that gospel message, and receive Jesus into our lives. If we do these three things, if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you do these three things, you can be confident in the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. That is, that's amazing. And I'd like to draw our attention back to the passage this morning, verses 11 and 12. John says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So my question for you this morning is, do you have the Son of God? There's a very clear correlation in this passage. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. And so there's two groups of people in this room this morning. There's those who have the Son. And if that is you, then this passage is telling you that you can have full confidence that you have life through Jesus Christ. There needs to be no doubt in your mind about whether you have life that comes through Christ. For those in the room who, who either don't have Christ or, or maybe they're not sure if they have Christ, if that's you, you can change that today. You can go from, from this camp to this camp this morning. And at the end of this message, I'm going to call up our prayer team. These are the perfect people to talk to. If, if you're in that headspace this morning and you want, to, you want to do something about Christ's call, but you don't know what it is or you don't know what the next steps are, come talk to our prayer team at the front of the chapel after service, and they will love to talk to you about this. They, they will pray with you and explain salvation to you and explain the gospel again and again and again. They will talk to you about this. And that brings us back to the main point for this morning. It's the Christians who can be confident and draw near to God through Christ. And so that, that promise, that main point that John's making in this passage, it applies to those who have the Son. 
So now we're going to go on to our second point, the second type of confidence that we can have from this morning's passage. We can have confidence in prayer. And this comes from verses 14 and 15, which is some of my favorite, what's, uh, there are a couple of my favorite verses about prayer in all of the scriptures. And I, I hope to show you why in like the next eight minutes. This is going to be awesome. So verses 14 and 15 tells us how we ought to pray. And I hope that this inspires us to, to revamp our prayer life this morning. Uh, starting in verse 14, it says, this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. So I'm going to be honest with you. When I first read these verses years and years ago, I read them and I was like, that doesn't, that doesn't really move the needle for me, right? It, basically what it's telling me is as long as I pray and ask for the things that God's already planning to do, then he's going to answer my prayers, right? whoop de do. That doesn't motivate me to go pray to God. It didn't motivate me to go pray. It definitely didn't give me confidence that God was listening to my prayers and doing the things that I was asking him to do. It sounded like he'd already made up his mind, and as long as I come ask for the exact thing he'd already decided to do, then he'll answer them. But this passage is saying so much more than that. This passage is intended to give us confidence in our prayers, and it, it, it's showing us something totally different than what I thought when I first read it. And so then the next thing that comes to mind when I think about praying in accordance with God's will is this tagline that we add to the end of our prayers right? And I'm, I'm guilty of doing this myself, where I'll pray for something bold. God, would you save this person if it's your will, right? God, would you heal this person if it's your will? God, would you do this amazing thing if it's your will? And it's like you're playing this, this game where you kind of have to bet on some things, and you put your chips in one pile and hope that that's what God's planning to do. And if it's not, then well, it's all right. That phrase is like a little cop-out, right? That, oh, well, God didn't answer my prayer. It must not have been his will that also doesn't give me confidence when I'm praying. That just allows me to kind of sneak out the back door in case I pray for things publicly and they don't come true. They don't come to pass. You see, praying God's will is not this guessing game where we just have to kind of throw darts at the dartboard and hope that we're hitting the right thing. We have tens of thousands of verses in the scriptures where God has revealed to us the things that he desires, the things that he wants to see happen in this world. God's revealing to us his will. And as I was thinking about this, it made me think of my relationship with Pastor Nate, right? I, I know Nate. He and I talk weekly. We see each other at work all the time, and we have conversations. One of the things that's brought us together the most is our love for football. We both love the NFL, so especially during football season, we'll come together, and we'll talk about the games, and we'll have this great conversation. In fact, some of my favorite conversations that I've ever had with Pastor Nate came in September of last year, right after my Denver Broncos beat his 49ers on Sunday Night Football. <laughs> but when I have these conversations with Nate, right? I know him. I know things about him because I've heard them from him and I've heard people talk about him. So think about how ridiculous it would be, how he would receive it if I came up to him in the hallways next week and I said, hey, hey, Nate, you know, if, if that's your name. That'd be ridiculous because I know Nate. I've heard him refer to himself as Nate. I've heard other people refer to him as Nate. I've read that his name is Nate. I've seen it in every which way that his name is Nate. I can have full confidence that that's true because he's told me. The same is true of God's will. We can have full confidence in what God desires to see in this world because he tells us in his word. And I hope to show you there's a, a story in scripture of somebody who prayed according to God's will, prayed something bold, and it happened. I hope that this story will encourage us to pray bold prayers in accordance with God's will as well. For, uh, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, there's a man, a prophet that God has sent named Elijah. 
Elijah is God's prophet to Israel. And in order to understand this story, it's important to know what's happening in Israel at the time. Israel had a king named Ahab, and the Bible doesn't have very many nice things to say about Ahab. In just the chapter before, 1 Kings 16, this is how Ahab is introduced to the scene. It says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So he's basically the most evil king to come in Israel up to this point. And he's leading, and not, not to mention he's married to a wicked woman who has led him to serve false gods. And so Ahab and his wife Jezebel are going around the nation, setting up these altars to false gods. And so Israel naturally is following their leader and they're starting to worship these false gods. So this is the group that God has called Elijah to minister to. They're serving false gods and Elijah comes into Ahab's office or throne room or whatever he sat in. He comes up to Ahab and he says this, 1 Kings chapter 17, 1. He says, Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Think about what Elijah's saying. He's saying the rain is going to stop for a few years. That's not a prayer that I've ever made. I've never been bold enough to ask God to stop the rain for a few years because I don't think that one's coming true. But the reason that Elijah was able to pray this, and we think about it, right? It's not, it's not what you may think. It, this is not a story of Elijah telling God what to do. It's, it's also not a story of God listening to Elijah a little bit extra closely because he's a prophet and he's not like a normal dude, right? If we were to pray this, God wouldn't listen. But because Elijah was a prophet, God listened a little bit more closely to his prayers. That's not what's happening in this story at all. In fact, Elijah knew the promises that God had made, and he was praying boldly on account of one of the promises that God made to his people. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 11, this is a scripture that Elijah would have had access to. Deuteronomy chapter 11, God makes a promise to his people. Starting in verse 13, he says, If you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. So he's saying, if you follow me, I will give you rain. A couple verses later, he tells them the opposite side of things. He says, take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit. You will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. So God's laying out the situation. He says, if you follow false gods and don't worship me, I will close up the heavens and I will withhold rain from your land. If you follow me and serve me, I will give you rain in all the seasons. You'll have your fruit, you'll have your wine, you'll have your oil. Elijah knew this promise. He knew that God had made this promise. And so when he looks around and sees Israel serving false gods, he boldly prays that God would withhold the rain just like he said he would in Deuteronomy chapter 11. And we see what happens. First Kings chapter 18, verse one. We see after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Think about that. In the third year, it's been three years since Elijah prayed, asking God to withhold the rain. In the third year, saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. And then in this famous story, Elijah goes up on Mount Carmel opposite the prophets of Baal and they both set up altars to their God to try to prove once and for all who the real God is. 
all day and all night, the prophets of Baal are walking around, chanting, singing, trying to get Baal to come accept the offer that they've made on this altar. And then it's Elijah's turn, and he, he says, watch this. He pours water all over his altar. He soaks the wood, makes a moat around the altar to make sure that there's nothing, nobody but God who can set this thing on fire. And then he prays, asking God to accept his offering, and God rains fire down from heaven, so much so that it eats up everything on the altar, the wood, the bull, and it even drinks up all the water in the moat around that Elijah had set up. So this happens, all of Israel is there to see it, and they see that their God, the one that they've actually turned away from, is the one they ought to have been serving this whole time. That God, the God of Israel, is the real God, and they start to worship God. They turn back to him, and Elijah looks out out into the distance, and he sees a cloud the size of a man's hand, bringing rain for the first time in more than three years because Israel turned back to God. Elijah prayed boldly, on account of God's promises. And you still might be thinking, okay, Christian, that's a great story, but I'm never gonna be able to pray like that. Like surely that's just an Elijah thing, right? We're not supposed to do that. Well, James would beg to differ. In James chapter five, he's explaining how we ought to pray. And the story that he goes back to, he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. And he points back to the story of Elijah. He says, remember what Elijah did when he asked God to withhold the rain for three and a half years. That's the example story that we're supposed to model our prayers after, according to James. So what does that mean for us? How do we model our prayers after the story of Elijah? Well, think about things in your life that you'd like to see areas of your life that you'd like to see God working in, that you need God to show up for, and then find promises in God's word that apply to those areas. So maybe this summer has been really, really tough for you. Maybe it's been go, 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 go. You haven't had any breaks. You haven't had an opportunity to rest. It just feels like you're, on, you're, you're running on fumes and there's no end in sight. You can pray according to a promise like Psalm 127:2, which says, it's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. For some of you, no matter how hard you try, you can't find the right path in life. It's just everywhere you turn, it seems like there's dead ends or slammed doors, and you just can't find where God is leading you, where he wants you to be in your life. Well, if that feels like it's the case, you can pray, a, a, you can pray according to a promise like Psalm 37, 23, which says, the steps of a man are established by the Lord. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. So if you delight in God's way, You can ask him, say, God, help me to delight in your way that you would establish my steps. Maybe some of us have lost loved ones this summer, and it feels feels hard to get up and keep going in the morning. It feels hard to get that motivation to continue living life the same way you did before you lost that person. If that's you, you can pray according to a promise like Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see, the reason we can have confidence in these prayers is because our prayers are, letter A, rooted in God's faithfulness. Our prayers are rooted in God's faithfulness. So we can have confidence in our salvation. We can have confidence in our prayers. And now finally, we can have confidence, point three, in forgiveness. Confidence in the forgiveness that God offers. This next section is really cool because John takes the principle that he just laid out about prayer and how we ought to pray boldly according to God's God's promises, and he applies it to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So watch what he says here in verses 16 to 21 in 1 John 5. He says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life 
to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So he just finished talking about how we ought to pray boldly on account of God's promises. And I think that he's referring back to a promise that God made earlier in this book, 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. When God said that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, he is faithful to forgive and cleanse. We can pray this for our brothers and sisters who are caught up in sin. Now, if we think about this, it is a relational command that we're receiving. We're receiving a, a command to pray for our brothers and sisters, and he specifically says that are in sin, not leading to death. Now, this is a controversial passage, and I have two minutes to cover it up, but I think that the, the one thing that can help us bring clarity to this is when I first read it, I thought to myself, sin that doesn't lead to death versus sin that does? Is, is there some invisible list somewhere of sins that we can't commit because those are outside of God's grace? Right? Is there a, an invisible list somewhere that if, if you do any of these things, sorry, Jesus' sacrifice doesn't cover those. You just keep, you know, you can sin on this list and that's fine. Jesus forgives those, but you can't sin on that list. Is that what he's talking about in this passage? And I, I, I think that the principle we see laid out in scripture is not that the, the sin that can be forgiven versus the sin that can't, I don't think it matters about the, the very sin that you commit. I don't think there's a list of actions that you can take that God isn't going to forgive. I think that the sin that leads to death has more to do with your heart attitude re regarding that sin, right? Because you can take the same sin if one person commits it and then they get on their knees repentant. They confess it before God and they repent from that sin. They ask God to change them so that they will not do it again. Versus person B who commits that sin and they have a hardened heart. They don't confess that sin. They don't repent of that sin, right? One of these sins will lead to death because that person is not repenting Jesus' forgiveness will not cover that person. Whereas this other person who committed the same sin, they will not lead to death because they've repented, they've confessed that sin, they've asked for Jesus' forgiveness in their life. So we ought to pray this for our brothers and sisters. Now, here's the challenge for each one of us. Do you know your brothers and sisters in this church well enough to know when they would be caught in sin? If your brother or sister, somebody sitting next to you, somebody who you do life with, maybe somebody in your small group, if that person was caught in sin, would you know it and be able to pray for it? If not, if you don't know your brothers and sisters well enough to do that, then you can't obey this command. You can't obey the command to pray for them if you don't know when they're caught in sin in the first place. So it's important for us to make sure that we have accountability relationships in our lives, not only when we know about others' sin, but so that they can know about our sin. And then finally, I think that there's a principle as well in this passage for us to investigate our own lives and make sure that we are not caught in this type of sin. 
verse 18, we see, it says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him, right? If you've been born of God, this passage says that you do not keep on sinning. That doesn't mean that if you, as soon as you're saved, you're going to stop sinning and never do another thing wrong in your life. That's not what it means. That would be very, it would, it would make us lose motivation really fast. But what it's telling us is that the fruit, one of the fruits of a Christian life is that there's not a pattern of continuous unrepentant sin in your life. So each one of us ought to look introspectively and, and ask the question, is there a pattern of unrepentant sin in our lives? And if there is, we should act on that. We should, we should repent and confess, but find brothers and sisters in this church who can pray for you. So my challenge for you this week, and this is a really hard, awkward conversation to have, one of my challenges for you is to find a brother or sister in this congregation this week and ask them about their sin. Pull them aside, ask them about how you can be praying for them and what specific sin struggles you can be praying for. That is a hard, hard thing to do. And it's going to be an awkward conversation. But the good news is that everybody in all three services this morning got the same challenge and they all know it's coming. So find a brother or sister this week, pull them aside and ask them about how you can be praying for their sin. I'd like to invite the band back out as we close, but I'd like to close with three takeaways. How, how can we change our actions and change our lives because of the things that we read in this passage? Number one, we can have confidence in Christ. Confidence in Christ. And if, if you are a believer, you can have confidence that Christ has given you eternal life through his life, death, and resurrection. And if you're not a believer— then I'd like to invite our prayer team up at this moment. These people under the screens, the prayer team, these are the people that you should talk to. If you want to know more about a relationship with Christ this morning, if Christ interests you, but you haven't quite committed yet, talk to our prayer team. Second, secondly, the second application I'd like us to take away this morning is to pray bold prayers according to God's will. Think about what areas in your life you want to see God work. Find promises that relate to those areas and pray boldly according to those promises that God makes in his word. Pray that God would come through on his word because of his faithfulness. And number three, back to what I was just saying, find a brother or sister in this congregation this week, ask them about their sin and pray for them. Pray that God would give them life through their sin. Now, I'd like to close this sermon series with the same main message that John has been hammering home all summer in this letter. And that's this reminder, brothers and sisters, if you have salvation in Christ, if you've put your faith in Christ, you can be 100% confident that you have access to God and you have eternal life through Jesus Christ. 100% confident. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We need you. Lord, you remind us every day of how much we need you. And I pray, Lord, as as we go into this week, Lord, would you help us to be confident that we are saved, Lord? And, and for those in the room who are not saved, who or maybe they're just exploring Christianity, Lord, would you show them that there's no better place to be than in the arms of God? That the family of God is made up of those who have eternal life and they're able to live life to the fullest. Lord, I pray also for us, would you give us the boldness to pray bold prayers according to your will? Lord, help us bring our attention to promises in your word this week that apply to situations in our lives. Lord, and would we pray boldly according to those promises? And then finally, Lord, would you give us the boldness to go find brothers and sisters and ask them about their sin? Lord, would you give us the vulnerability when we are asked about our sin 
to answer honestly and to, to, to share our struggles so that we can be prayed for in the same way. Lord, ultimately, I ask that we would be reminded and comforted every day by the truth that we have life through Jesus Christ because of his life, death, and resurrection. Lord, we love you. We wanna serve you in everything that we say and do. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.